Welcome to the Forest Educator Podcast. I'm Ricardo Sierra. Okay, in today's Forest Spotlight, we're going to be talking about cold training. And cold training is a concept that is made up of a series of different stories and lectures and pieces of curriculum, so to speak, that I've gathered over the years of teaching about winter survival, wilderness survival in winter. I used to run camps called North Wind for young people, as well as college-age students or anybody, really, adults or whatever, who would want to come out and learn to how to handle ourselves in the cold, how to survive, and, and how to be able to take advantage of all the cool things that are available to us in the winter. And in upstate New York, winter is a reality for at least December, January, February, March, and even into April a little bit, sometimes way into April, depending on when we get like a la- a really big snowfall or something. And so those winter cold temperatures are something that we really have to live with for a long time. And... You, you can't really get the benefit of being outside in the winter if you don't really have the right mindset, the right clothing, the right approach, and also have the willingness to get out there and push your boundaries. So it's a difficult thing to do. It's a significant barrier. That's what I guess what I'm trying to say. It's a barrier for a lot of people who are really scared of being cold. They're scared of what might happen. They're There's a lot of unknowns in their mind. And so it can be a real impediment. And for those of you listening right now who maybe winter isn't your friend, really, because you're just like, "Ah, I don't know, I don't like that. I totally understand where you're coming from. And I just want you to know, we've all been there. Some of us have been there when we were very young. Uh, I first encountered cold when I moved from California to upstate New York when I was nine. And for nine years, I had living in Sacramento, living in LA, living in places where it was 105 degrees in the summer, unbelievably hot. And the coldest that it really gets in Sacramento in the winter typically is in the 40s. You have a couple days where it's like maybe 34 or something. I think I've saw, I saw snow there once my whole life. And it, it just was mostly foggy and damp and wet. We had a lot of rain at least back then. And those cold days were the only cold I knew unless we drove up in up into the mountains for a day to go sledding or something up in the up where it was we actually saw snow. And we would go out there, run around and then come back and it would be warm again and even during the daytime in the west in in the American West the air is very dry. So when the sunlight comes in and you get that clear blue sky and the bright sun, it, the air temperature will warm up very fast. So it can be very comfortable uh, actually in from mid-morning till till the sun goes down. It actually can be really comfortable air temperature wise. And then of course it drops like a rock as soon as that sun goes down. That's not true for upstate New York. You can have a day where it's minus five and then have it during the day it heats up to two degrees. And it's cold all day and all night. And it can be just bone crushingly cold with a high wind. And and so I had a big wake up call when I was nine because I came out here with my mom. We went across country and I had to figure out what all my friends would say, let's go sledding. And they would just grab their stuff and go. And I didn't really know what was the stuff I needed. And I don't remember this that well. So my mom might actually remember it more than I do. But I had to go and get snow boots and I had to get long underwear. And the long underwear we had wasn't like what you have nowadays where we have like silk and wool and all that. Now, the the long underwear that I had was really that waffle knit cotton long underwear, which actually is really warm as long as it's dry. But I would put those on long johns and we would bundle up and I'd put sweaters on and then put these big jackets on and go out there and just try to figure it out. And Some days it would be 32 degrees or 35 degrees and I'd be completely overdressed. And then other days 
I wouldn't wear as much and go out and I'd be freezing. So it's luckily none of that was life-threatening. When you just go out sledding for two hours and then come back in and have hot chocolate, you're really, even if you're chilly and cold, you can sit by the wood stove and very shortly <laughs> thereafter warm right back up. So you're never really in that hypothermia zone other than your fingers or might be like really white and you're just, oh man, I, my, I threw too many snowballs. I made too many snowballs with my bare hands and then threw too many of them. And now I'm like really feeling it. And as a child, you learn that over days and days, weeks and weeks for years. And so you start to make adjustments, but a lot of the adjustments you make are not necessarily that conscious. So I don't remember that much. I remember my feet getting really wet and every time my feet or my boots or shoes would get really wet, then my feet could, would just freeze like crazy. And we had these big like green and yellow boots or gray, beige, I guess. But it was these kind of like army green boots that were, that had the felt liner inside. And those things that they got wet and soggy were just incredibly heavy. And I remember just taking my uh, like bread bags and putting them over my three pairs of socks that were on my feet. And I, and then I'd slide the bread bag over my foot and then go into my boot. And then I would wear that because that would keep my feet dry when I would be out all day running around in the wet snow with my friends, making snowmen and making all these jumps that we would make for our sleds and toboggans that were impossibly dangerous because we would fly off that and go into the on that hard packed frozen wet snow and i don't know i learned a lot about that like some days you'd have a wet a big wet snowfall be like two feet of wet snow and so you're out there running around making these cool runs with saucers and toboggans and sleds and then you'd say okay tomorrow we're going to do all this stuff and then at night it would freeze and so all of that snow that was wet will be freeze solid and so then you go out and that snow, you can walk on it, maybe punch through every 10 steps. But then that you would get on a sled and you would go five times faster because you're going over like ice. And you also might, the weather might suddenly change and it's like the wind is blowing. The beautiful day you had yesterday is gone. And today it's like completely different. And so I started to learn as a kid to really understand something about weather unconsciously really, but I learned to adjust and I learned to use my head. And there's a lot of days where I dress and then I go outside, then I'd be like, Ooh, I need a scarf. I need a hat. I need these other things that I didn't need yesterday. And I also learned that if you want to go outside one day and then you come back in, not to leave all your wet, freezing cold clothes in your mudroom where it's cold and to bring them in to the living room and set them up, not on a really nice chair, but on a, you know, crappy chair and let them get dried by the wood stove so that you can then go play the next day. So you dry your socks, you dry your mittens, you dry your jacket, anything that got really soggy or wet or damp or cold, you really would want to let, take the time to let those dry out and do that so that you could then go the next day. Because there's nothing worse than trying to dig through your closet looking for other warm clothes that you could wear because then you end up grabbing like your sweater the nice sweater and you wear that and then you get yelled at because when you take your jacket off at the end of the day your mom's like why did you wear that sweater <laughs> now it's all pilled up and everything because we're running around and i don't know if she ever she, i don't think she ever really yelled at me but it just saves you from making uh wardrobe choices so there's the point I guess I'm making with this is that there's an unconscious learning process that happens. And that's really nice when you can learn to do that as kids by going outside in the winter for short periods of time and then being able to extend that and to go out longer and longer because you figured it out. And it's, a, it's an awesome uh, way to go. But many times for us as educators, we don't really have the luxury of that. We might only have these kids for one afternoon a week and every single time the weather's going to be a little different and you're not there at their house to be able to help them make choices and it's harder sometimes for us to be able to watch people and try to see how they're figuring it out we're going to back up a minute 
and we're going to just talk a little bit about just about cold in general. What's interesting about human beings is that we have adapted to some of the most extreme climates all over the world, and that it's our adaptability and our ability to fill niches that other animals can't do that has led to humans becoming, in many ways, very successful. And it's it's a testament to our brains and our power to make tools and to make clothing and all the gear and everything we need to be able to live in both really cold temperature areas and also very hot and everything in between. And the the Inuit and all the like those northern tribes, the Sami people and man, I'm drawing a blank right now, but there's just like tribes all around, say Canada, the Cree and the Siberia, Finland, Greenland, all these different areas where it's just winter for a long time. We have learned to handle our business and and to make those adjustments and to make those adjustments and actually thrive in those niches, those ecological niches. Because in those places, there were resources and food and ways to build a life that was meaningful and valuable. And it's those places that are beautiful in their own way. And then the same is true for living in the jungle or the deserts. The northern African desert landscape is just unbelievably hot, unforgiving in some ways. But we've been able to figure out how do, what do we wear to keep our moisture in and, and not feel the effect, the drying effect of that hot sun and the wind and everything else. And so we have the ability to adapt to these places. And so one of the things that I always do whenever I would go to any new landscape, whether it's Texas or California or Idaho or wherever I've gone, going to Florida, anywhere, I like to think of what did the native people who lived there for thousands of years, what did they live? What did they do? How did they build their shelters? How did they handle mosquitoes? How did they handle the heat? How did they handle like a very barren landscape? And I remember hearing a story once by, I think it was Tom Elpel, who wrote an article about the, in, in a, I think it was the Prim Bulletin of Primitive Technology. And this article said it was the art of doing nothing. And he was describing how the Paiute Indian tribe was in the, primarily in like the Eastern Sierras and Nevada area. And when the colony, colonists or settlers, whatever you want to call them, were moving across and building railroads and everything else, they would look to the native people to say, hey, do you guys want to help us build this railroad? Do you want to help us with these roads or help us with whatever it is? And they saw the Paiute people just chilling out, like sitting in the shade, taking some grasses, weaving some incredibly beautiful baskets. and pretty much taking it easy. And they would refuse. The Paiute would say, hey, no, we're not going to do that. And they would really be misunderstood by the kind of like colonial mindset of America and Americans because they saw them as lazy. They were like, these people don't want to do anything. They're lazy. They're good for nothing, blah, blah, blah. Obviously, hey, we can't get them to do what we want them to do, so therefore they must be broken or messed up or something. But the reality was, in this article, they were talking about how for the Paiute, they understood that the carrying capacity of their land was finite. There were only so many black-tailed jackrabbits that they could hunt. There was only so much food that was available there with as little moisture as they had. It's really dry. It is just not, it is not a landscape like Northern, like North Carolina or Tennessee or any of these like more abundant places where they get lots of rainfall and just the, everything grows like a thick jungle overnight. That is not what it's like in Nevada and in the Owens Valley or whatever. And so they knew that in order for them to get the different foods and tr they would have to travel and that working to get those foods took energy 
And if you were not incredibly careful, you would expend more energy trying to get those foods than you would get back from those foods. And so they just said, it's oftentimes better to just do as little exertion as possible until whatever, until the buffalo came around or the season for all the gathering, all the pinion pine nuts, whatever it was that they were gathering, grass seeds, they would then go and do those, do those gathering and, and they survived. But they were just very smart about it. And I remember thinking about that article really impacted me a lot because it's so easy for us coming into and going into the landscape and just burning a tremendous amount of energy, building shelters, making a bow and arrow, doing all this work, knowing that we usually have a backup of food supply that we brought with us or that we can go back to our house or go back to the community and get food and come back in. But for people living close to the earth 700 years ago, 1,000 years ago, there was no other place to go back to. And there was nobody who was going to come rescue them. There weren't like other native people going, hey, we might have to go rescue some Paiute peoples. Let's come down out of these mountains and head down there to help. Just wasn't that backup. If so because of that, without that backup, you're on your own and and they probably each all knew stories of people that didn't make it at different times because of various factors that can just be deadly. So that is also true in winter survival and in cold climates that you are going to burn thousands and thousands of calories. Some, in some cases, people that go out and they're on a survival track, when we go out and we're building a snow shelter and we're gathering firewood and we're just walking to get firewood in snowshoes or thick snow, even if the snow is only six inches deep or a foot deep, that will cause you to burn like 7,000 calories a day. So you will lose weight really fast if you're doing that for a month, two months. It's not a, it's a crash course diet because your body's just literally going to need to be those calories to be replaced. And so there's this ravenous hunger that you can feel after just two days. And when we would go on a lot of our survival treks, we'd spend three weeks or whatever. I'd be like, okay, let's build grass blankets. We'd go out, get grass, come back, hang out in our barn with a wood stove, make our grass blankets, then practice our fire making techniques and do some other cool crafts and stuff. And then the next day we go out and practice some fire making methods. And then the next day we'd go out and do build a shelter or whatever, just to get the concept down. And so everyone knew what we were going to do. And we would build these skills over time because we were trying to learn them. And then we would put it all together for a four day quest or trek where we would put everything in our, everything we had in sleds. We would like sled it out and go out into one of the corners of our property and then put it all together and make it. And the, those first couple days, we were just burning energy so much in every way. <laughs> and everything is harder in the winter, breaking firewood and then stacking it and then, or tying it up and carrying it back to the pile. Like everything just becomes 10 to 20% harder, if not more. And you're burning more calories. And we would sometimes just after we built our shelter, got our firewood, got every, our camp all set up, you might just hang out there. We would cook some food, <laughs> make some tea, make some hot chocolate. We would cook some oatmeal. Then somebody would pull out bacon and we'd cook bacon on a stick or, or sausages. And then sometimes someone would say, hey, I'm going to boil some eggs. And we would just start to cook. And then we'd hang out and tell some stories. We'd carve, we'd coal burn bowls. We would do things during that time, which would be fun. And then we'd say, all right, somebody would go, all right, let's go get more firewood because the sun's going to go down at four o'clock. And so we would go do that. Maybe we'd go and set a couple of like animal traps or we'd go out and look for animal tracks or see what, we, what if there was something we could gather. But a, a lot of our time is just spent trying to eat enough calories to stay warm and to feel comfortable. And just cooking around a fire that fire has to be pretty strong in order to keep everybody warm around the fire and cook food and dry out our clothing. And now all those things take time. And I know that was something that 
was a little bit of an eye opener for a lot of people taking those classes was that they just went, man, I did not think that it would, it was going to take so long to do that. Probably if you were just by yourself, you could shorten that, but there's also a community feeling that comes from being out on a track and working together and trying to figure out where are you going to go when you have to go to the bathroom and how is that all going to work? It's especially if it's 20 below zero or something like we have, we've had 20 below zero weather at times we've had minus five, whatever. And when you go outside and it's five degrees or 15 degrees, or especially as you get closer to approaching zero, there's something that happens in your body. It's the only way I can describe it where your body, you walk outside and your body instinctively knows, and it starts telling you, we don't have the right clothing or have the protection of a car or a building. We are going to die. It's not a, this isn't to scare anything. This isn't to scare, your body's not trying to scare you. It's just basically sending the message. We will get cold. We will get cold where we can't reheat ourselves by ourselves. We will die. And that's a really wonderful wake-up call for us because it it's like for some people, it's the first time their body's really told them something in a very clear message. And so it's, wow, my, I can really feel that. Wow, what is happening here? And I'm like, yeah, when you start to listen to your body a little bit more, it will tell you what it likes when you eat something or when you don't eat something. It'll tell you when you don't quite feel, when you're when you're starting to be susceptible to a cold or flu. And it will tell you different things at a very fine level if you are willing to give yourself a chance to check in with your body and ask it what it needs. That's not to say that you you can just tune in and then cure yourself of every possible ailment, but it will help you because it can communicate if we're listening. And so the cold will make you listen because it is like a natural law, right? It's like gravity. And the, when we walk out and we're outside, our body is generating heat, all the chemical reactions that are going on for us digesting food and burning energy and, and converting converting our sugar, our, our food into calories and sugar and glucose, and then letting it go into our muscles and let it us move around. All of that is happening to us but when we go out in the winter, the cold is just sucking any heat out of everything. It wants everything to be that same temperature. And so it's just a constant pull. And it always affects our extremities, our fingers, our nose, our toes, our arms, our legs, like all of those that parts of us that are thinner and less further away from our core, where our body temperature is really held and generated those always go first. The process of losing our body's heat is called hypothermia. A lot of you probably know about that already. Hypothermia ha has like three phases to it or three, not necessarily stages, but there are three kinds of hypothermia. You may know some of them. Most people know what cute hypothermia is, which is when you fall through the ice or your clothes get all wet all of a sudden and the wind comes and you're like, oh no. And you, it's like when your body has this like sudden loss of heat. And when that happens, your body will start to shut down because it can't regenerate that heat. But there's a difference between sudden or acute hypothermia. And then there's what's called gradual or they call it subacute, I guess. There's a technical name, but from a medical standpoint, but from a I like to call it gradual hypothermia, where you're out for five days in the cold on a track or something, and you never quite warm up enough to allow yourself to be really functioning at that optimal temperature. And so when that happens, it usually happens over two or three days. And I know of people have told me stories. I know one instructor was telling me he was in like, I think it was Colorado or someplace out that way, Montana. And he was out with everybody and they were just skiing all day and then eating great food and then going into their tents and sleeping at night. And this person's very thin and very muscular, wiry, really knowledgeable about the outdoors and everything. But 
he just did not have the body mass to hold the heat that he had inside. And so he just always felt cold. And then even at night, he was still feeling chilly and cold. And he didn't really talk about it because he was also a wilderness instructor who has been just running programs and everything else. So I think everyone really looked up to him and I think he was reluctant to, and that's what he told me. He said, I was reluctant to say anything because I just, I didn't really, you know, want to cause problems when I feel like I'm somebody that should know and should be able to figure it out. And so he just thought, it'll be fine. I'll be better. And one of the problems with hypothermia is that as you get really cold and your body can't heat everything up, you're, you will start to lose focus and your ability to think will get affected three quarters of the way down the road. First, you lose your manual dexterity where it's hard to put your zipper together and zip up your clothes or tie your boots or there's like parts where your fingers just don't seem to work right and you can feel drowsy or whatever, but you will start to lose that medical mental capacity for making good decisions. And so he said, I didn't realize it, but after about the third day, I was not making good decisions and able to then at that point even say, hey, I'm too cold. But luckily, somebody there said, hey, you look really pale. And they checked his temperature and they were like, you are really cold. And they had to call in a helicopter and get him out of there in the middle of his 10-day winter ski backcountry skiing program or whatever and get him out of there. And he had to get warmed up and everything. And, and he was fine. But it could, he could have died if they, and it could have been something where he was really close to death by trying to warm up at night and then not quite being warmed up. And then he could be in a really catatonic state or, and it's a really scary thing to get hypothermia when it's gradual like that, because you're not really, you don't really think you're in hypothermia. You just feel like, eh, I'm just pretty cold and I'm just not warming up or whatever, but dangerous. The third one is called chronic hypothermia. And that's usually happens as people get older. They just, every time they start getting cold, their body just is not quite able to increase its capacity to generate blood flow and radiate that warmth out to their extremities. And so they will start to slip into that much, much faster. So there's, again, acute, gradual, and chronic and there's also people who just have varying physical conditions that make it so that their fingers will ache or their toes, like they will start to feel pain or they will just have a really hard time regenerating their heat. And so there, but this isn't something, if you do have a condition about getting cold and not being able to really generate that heat, that is a hundred percent okay. And it's just really important that you know your body and you know what you need and then to make sure you're dressed right and staying warm, building a fire, doing whatever you have to do to support yourself being out there. And sometimes when we're working with kids or teens or adults, some people may not know that they have those things. And so the, one of the things that is like a staple in all of my programs in the winter is that we're just constantly checking on each other, not by saying, Hey, how are you doing? But by looking and seeing how they're doing. So in other words, are they in a place where they are alert? Are they responding to my comments or jokes or stories? Are they, are there, does it look like they're having trouble doing like tasks that involve lighting a match or doing things. You probably have all heard or read some, hopefully maybe some of you have read about the story called To Build a Fire by Jack London, where it's a real famous, fairly short story about a man who gets wet, falls through the snow, tries to make a fire, makes it in a bad spot. The snow falls off a tree, puts it out. Then he has to move the fire, try again. But at that point, because it's 60 below zero, it's too late and he's not able to get the you know, get his fingers to work, to hold a match, to light the match, to light the fire. And so he just doesn't make it. And at the very last part, he was like reaching for his dog because he thought, oh, if I could get my dog and kill it, I could put my hands inside of it and it would actually warm it up, which is a horrible thing to think of. 
because we all love animals. And at the same time, for him, that was his only way that he could imagine getting warm in this other environment. And when you fall through the ice at 60 below zero, you're probably not going to make it unless you are incredibly smart. And man, that's tough. Everything is harder in the cold. Everything is magnified in terms of risk and in terms of the ability of it to cause a, a lot of problems. When it gets cold out, you can have a hatchet. I've seen hatchets just break, like metal hatchets will just chip off. Like metal when it's cold is just brittle, like you wouldn't believe. Uh, plastic, I've seen people with like plastic, unbreakable sleds where they are like, grab this sled and toss it in what they thought was the snow and underneath it was a log and it just made huge cracks in the sled. Um, you know, stuff breaks way easier in the cold. Everything is just cold is just something that is highly impactful in all the things around, around us, the tools, everything is affected that way. So that's one of the things when it comes to gear is that when you buy gear, so for example, like snowshoes, if you buy gear from a company that really tests their gear under extreme conditions, like for example, like Patagonia or North Face or some of the other, you know, gear companies that really understand this, they will test those things so that when you're out 10 days out snowshoeing somewhere, your snowshoes or your snowshoe poles aren't going to just break on the third day or fifth day or something. And you're whatever, 20 miles into the backcountry at 14,000 feet or whatever it is, they're testing it. They're getting the right kinds of plastic that can handle those low temperature. If you buy something that's made in Singapore from a company you never heard of before, and those, that company didn't do any testing, you just try testing it when you're not in the backcountry when you need it. A lot of times I've seen people come in and they're like, oh yeah, I got these snowshoes. They look really great. And I'm like, oh, that's awesome. They look really good. And then they'll, they'll say, yeah, I couldn't believe it. They were $89. And I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> and then whatever, I forget about it. And I go, yeah, just really watch and make sure that they're okay. And then two days later, they're just like, the strap just broke on my snowshoes. Now I can't put them on or something just cracked or something bent. It's just brutal. It's just the people making those things. They're making them because people are buying them, but they're not necessarily going to worry too much because most people are not taking them out into extreme situations. But uh, if you are, you want to actually understand and get good gear. So one of the things that I'm going to say about cold is that, and, and right now I've just been talking mostly about hypothermia, how dangerous, what it, how cold. I've been like pounding the fact that it's really serious. But I think of cold as a crucible for leadership. Like it's a place where leadership is born. And what I mean by that is that Cold will force you to pay attention to your body, to your gear, to the weather. It will force you to pay attention to each other. It will force you to really look at what is going on and be in the present moment. And it will also force you to make good decisions because if you don't make those decisions, you will pay. And you will pay in some cases very dearly. I know a lot of people who are winter people, wilderness people who have missing toes because they paid the price. Okay. Not necessarily that they did everything wrong, but they're just, it, all you have to do is do one little thing wrong. And all of a sudden you're going to pay a price. And it's really important because it's going to help you to teach you about the limits of your body and your bot, the limits of that mind-body connection. You know how some people will say, as you go, and I've never done it, there's this whole thing that used to be really popular. I don't know. I'm sure that some people are still offering it, but they had a, can you walk over hot coals, that kind of walk, walk through fire. 
those types of experiences. And it's like a whole weekend and you come there and the person gets you all psyched up. And I remember thinking like, okay, if you can walk through walk over hot coals, why don't you do it right now? I've got a huge fire. <laughs> and then they'll say, no, you can't do that. You have to really be in the right mind space and you have to do it. And so there's this element of you have to get your mind. And if your mind is right, your body will protect you and you can walk through anything. You can go through this hot, red hot coals and blah, 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 which is great. And I know lots of people that have done that and they will tell me, oh yeah, I only got a little blister on my heel or whatever. And to me, that's awesome. And I don't really know the nature of it. I never took any of those. I was like, why? <laughs> like, I know I, it was a partly why it was also, I probably didn't have a hundred bucks extra. I needed to pay rent or car payments or whatever. But there's this mind body connection that happens, which is that you can learn to not fear the cold or be stressed about the cold and instead embrace it. And there's a feeling of letting your body, uh, when you get out of your head about it, your body will then just go, all right, I can just handle it. It's the cold and it's no big deal. And I'm just going to keep my body warm and I will tell Rick when to start moving and a little faster and I'll do that, do these things. And it's awesome. And that is a very real thing being able to not feel tense. The easiest thing I can say is that when it's really cold out, the tendency is to clench your teeth and get your muscles all tight. And it's just, oh my gosh, it's so cold. And you just contract your body, right? You contract your shoulders, you tuck yourself in to protect your core. And it's this, oh man, it's going to be so cold. Oh, I don't know what to do. And so your brain, everything is almost like wanting to roll into a little ball and just wait till spring. And I get that. That's normal. But the way that Tom Brown and other people have talked about cold is to say, relax, like breathe in that cool air very slowly and exhale and feel the cold as something that is good for the environment. It actually cleanses. It's The cold scours the landscape and it takes out the weak. It takes out all the branches of a tree that have died that get all waterlogged and then the wind comes and blows and they fall to the ground. It's like pruning the weak. That cold will come through and kill half of a bush or a whole bush because it's just growing in the wrong spot or it can't handle that cold and it will trim everything back. And it is a cleanser and it keeps the earth strong in a way. Kills ticks in some places, in some cases. It's just this really wonderful thing. Not It's not just a scary thing, something to be worried about or scared. And so I look at the cold and think, oh, this is so cool to be out here and nobody else is out. And I will just try to flip the script of it and to think about how beautiful it is in the winter and to think about the animals that live out here and how I can, I'm an animal and I can move and I can relax. And so I just try to breathe and feel and allow my fear and everything to go out of me and then to begin to move. And it's that mind-body connection is really important. And that, in a lot of ways, is one of the aspects of cold training that I love. But there's a limit to it, right? I wouldn't want to go out there and go, hey, I'm just, I'm going to go out and do the mind-body thing and my body will just take care of itself if you don't also have the right gear that is stupidity and you will probably die. Don't do that. Only do that if you are, it's like, if you want to go out and do crazy things, that's awesome. Because I just would say it's fun to test your limits, but make sure that you have a warm house. You got people that can help you if you're going to do and test things. I know people that go out and lay down in the snow naked and go out when it's super cold and it's all good. It's all fantastic, but you have to be able to know that you can get help quickly. And the whole thing about this is that the cold will cut through all of that. It will cut through anything that you have that's a fantasy and it will definitely make a, an impact in your life. And it will help you to make the right decisions and the right calls because you're going to know it, you're going to feel it inside. And so I, I see that as a crucible for leadership because if you are out with someone and you have experience in the cold and you have the right gear and you have that, that if somebody else goes, oh, I think I'll be okay, 
They won't be. And that's when your leadership can step in and go, hey, take my gloves. Those are not the right kind of gloves for this winter. Okay. Do not go here. Do this. Okay. Yeah. You're definitely going to need more than a salad after we build this shelter and do that. You have to have calories. And your leadership ability will step in and it will be indisputable. It's your experience and your deep knowing. And it will be something that people will listen to because it's coming from a from that crucible. It's coming from that where it's undisputed and people will get it. Now, sure, there are going to be stubborn people that will go, no, I'm going to be fine, blah, blah, blah. Sure, there are going to be people like that. And those are people that hopefully will still make it. But the point is that you will know and it will begin to build your understanding of what it means to lead and what it means to like know something at your core and then to be able to make act on that. And that's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about now everyone will listen to you no matter what, but they most people will listen when somebody as is saying something that they recognize as truth. It's critical. It to me cold being in the cold in learning about that is one of the best things you can do for like children and teens is to give them experiences where they're building that that combination, that recipe of experiences. What is it like to be too cold? What is it like to test yourself? What is it like to wear the right gear? What is it like to not wear the right gear? What is it like to not pay attention to the weather? And to all of those elements, right? Understanding hypothermia, understanding what to eat and what to, how much to drink and all of that. Um, all of that works on you. And the beautiful thing is that most of it is subconscious or something that you're I'm not, when I'm talking about the cold and taking care of yourself, I'm not talking about leadership. I'm not like, hey, everyone, leadership happens, blah, blah, blah. Like this is all part of stuff that I'm telling you, but as educators, but I'm not, this is, I wouldn't be talking about that. I would just be telling them this is what it's like and you go out and figure it out and do that and they'll get that. But the best, to me, some of the best things about forced education and nature-based learning is that you're learning something that builds your uh, self-esteem, your confidence, your leadership, your inner intuitive knowing, whatever you want to call it. All of those things add up to things that help us become more successful as human beings and as a community and as a family. All of those things are good things. And they, so they have good effects right? It's like hard work. You go out and you do the hard work all, all day of like putting a new fence in or chopping wood or doing whatever, building a garden and taking care of it or taking care of animals or whatever it is that's out outside on the land. All of those things help us because it gives us like a grounded, direct experience from which we can build our lives. And when we don't have that, you always feel something's missing. You never quite trust because you've never really, you can't trust what you know because you haven't actually tested what you believe and then figured it out. Everyone has a theory until, <laughs> what I think, who was it? Mike Tyson, I think, said that and said, everyone has a plan until someone punches them in the face. <laughs> so it's like they have an idea of how they want to fight. But then when something, when somebody comes at them, it's okay, all that plan goes out the window until, uh, unless, if they haven't tested it in that, type of situation. So this is what cold is all about. I, I wish I could maybe tell you, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm missing a bunch of stories in here, but I, I'll give you, I guess I'll tell you one story. When I was probably 13, I used to go out and we used to trap muskrats around the ponds, around these different farm ponds where I lived. And the ponds had bass in them and sunfish and everything. And I would go out and try to catch the muskrats from there. The farmer was always like, take the, get the muskrats out of the pond because it's ruining the pond, which I'm not sure if it actually was ruining it. I don't know. But they would sometimes undercut the banks by, by making all these holes. And so we'd go out and do that. Then as the winter progressed, the ice would get too thick and it wouldn't, trapping season would be over. And so I would go out and find a clear thick spot on the ice and then chop it out a hole with my hatchet and then try to fish for sunfish. And sometimes I'd catch those fish 
And then I would try to cook a fire, cook them over a fire or do something. And of course, I'm trying to navigate all this. I don't have any gear. I have one little pocket knife. I have a bunch of matches that I took from my mom. All of these things were things that I was trying to figure out how to do with literally zero guidance except for whatever I saw in like Field and Stream magazine that talks about catching lunker walleye in the winter. And I didn't even know what a walleye was and I didn't know how to catch them and we didn't have them there. And in upstate New York where we were in those ponds. And so I'm just trying to figure it out. And I remember one day going on a really long hike. My plan was just to hike up into the woods and make a little fire and cook some whatever it was. Like I had a cheese sandwich, I think, that I put in a tinfoil and I was going to put that over the coals. And I was just going to be out there. I just loved being out. It was, I was 13. There's no internet. If I stayed home, it was a snow day. If I stayed home, my mom would be like, hey, today's a good day to clean the attic or the basement. I'd just be like, okay, I'm out. I got to get out of here. So I would just take off and I went up there in the woods and I'm hiking and it was a warm day. It had snowed. And so there was big, nice, thick, fresh snow and I'm hiking around and it's started out being pretty cold. And so I was bundled up pretty well. And then it started to rain and then as it got warmer, I started taking off all these layers. I put them in my backpack or I had like a day pack. I made a little fire under a hemlock tree. There was rain dripping down and I ate my sandwich. It was like half cooked. And, and at some point I thought, I got to get out of here. Start, this rain is starting to really soak through. And I was getting cold. So I pull my jacket out and I guess my jacket, I don't know if I zipped up the back of my backpack or something, but it had gotten all wet. Like water had just been dripping down all through my clothes in, that I had in my pack. And so I had a rain jacket and a sweater inside. And then I have my pants, which are just jeans. And I'm walking back out of the woods and across this big field. And the wind starts blowing and the temperature starts to drop. So all of this is happening in the space of four or five hours. And as the temperature is dropping, my pants are starting to freeze. So they were soaking wet and then they started to freeze. And I had long underwear on. I, my, my long underwear was cotton, so it was still somewhat warm underneath, but I could feel that it was sucking the heat from my legs. And I still had a mile and a half to go, which isn't really that far. But for me as a 13 year old, it felt like a really long time, long ways. And I, because of where I was like behind a big giant hill that had a field and a whole bunch of woods and I had to go through hedgerows and crawl around through barbed wire fences and stuff. And I was just like, I don't know if I'm going to make this. I don't know if what's going to happen. I came to this you know, edge of this field and the wind is just blowing now. And when the temperature drops and that wind blows, it just cuts right through you. And I should have taken the jacket, even though it was wet and put it on and then put my raincoat over it. I didn't really think to do that. My, my core is getting cold too, but I was standing there and I had this huge expanse of a field to walk through. And I thought, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I came around the corner of this one hedgerow and there was this little pond and it was a pond I'd seen in a hundred times and all over the ice sticking out of the ice was these cattails and it was all cattail heads. And I remember taking those cattails and banging them and having them like the fluff just explode all over. And we would do that and hit each other. <laughs> you know, as kids, you would take them and smack them on the ice or you'd smack them on a tree and they would just send those seeds and all that down everywhere. All these cattail heads were there staring at me and some of them were half open and starting to fall apart. Some of them were, they were still brown and they looked like hot dogs or whatever there. And I took those because I knew that it created like this down. And I just was like, man, my legs and everything are just, I feel like I was in a suit of armor and they were getting colder and colder. And so I walked over to, the, to those and I started grabbing them and breaking them up. And I just opened up my jeans and just started shoving the handfuls of them as they opened up. When, when they open up, when you squeeze them, they open up and they just expand. It's just like foam and foam inflation. It just, they expand and spread out in this like really soft material. 
And so I would just shove handfuls of them into my pants on both sides, everywhere in my, my, my pants were just literally like tubes of ice. And I just started shoving them in as best I could. And I started tucking some of them into my rain jacket as well. I got those in as much as I could. And it was freezing because the wind's blowing and my cattails are cattail down is just like drifting across the snow, moving with the wind. And I'm, I probably got a third of the cattail stuff in and the rest of it was getting blown away, but I just kept adding and adding. I finally got all of those cattails down there that I thought I could put in and zipped up. My zipper was free frozen. So I had to just button it and then just ride it out. And I started walking. And as I was walking through the field, I was going real slow because I couldn't bend my knees. <laughs> and, um, and I'm just moving along and just going, I don't know if this is going to be any better. And as I walked, I think I walked about maybe 500 feet. And the heat that I had was starting to generate, was starting to get trapped in, the, in those cattails. And they were absorbing some of the moisture from my long underwear and my flannel shirt, whatever. And I started to warm up. And by the time I got home, I, my, my legs, my pants were still frozen on the outside, but it got incredibly warm. And I was just like, this is working. I thought I'd discovered some new thing. I was just, I felt like Einstein or something, but I was like, this is incredible. I don't even feel that cold. My, I couldn't feel my toes. My, my ears were killing me. I had a hat, but it was just all wet. But I finally got to my house and I was ecstatic. <laughs> and I just, then I thought, I don't know what to do because I have, everything is covered in this down. And so, and I took my, I went into my mudroom. We have this really narrow, long mudroom. And I was like, uh-oh, I really can't, I really can't take these clothes off in the house. Cause it, I knew what cattails would do. They would expand and it would just get everywhere. And so I actually had to walk outside. I put a piece of cardboard down I walked outside, took my clothes off, and it was I felt warmer anyway. I took my clothes off, left them outside, and then came in with just my underwear and went straight to the bathroom, got the went upstairs, turned on the tub, and got that hot water going. And I had to scrub and scrub. I think I ended up throwing out my long underwear. They were so padded with cattails. I probably could have cleaned them, but I was 13, so um you know, when you're 13, you just throw things out if you can't figure out how to deal with it. But it was a revelation for me because I was like, oh my gosh, nature, nature was right there. Goldenrod is right there. Um, you know, grasses are there, pine needles are there. Even if it's wet, it will help you. And it was amazing. And I've done this before with children where we would go and I would go to a Salvation Army or one of those secondhand stores and I would get flannel shirts and I'd say, let's sew them all up. We'd sew them up and leave like a one spot open that we could stuff things in. And so some, we would experiment and we would stuff in like crumpled newspaper. And so other, other places we would stuff in cattail down or goldenrod or put grasses in. And so there'd be these two flannel shirts and they looked really goofy. It looked like you were trying to be a superhero. Um, but they would put those on. and walk around in it and they would feel the warmth from it because it would capture their body heat. And, and then we'd have a hard time trying to open them up and then get all the stuff out of them so we could do that with the next class. So we didn't do that often because it was just logistically trying, but it was really fun to do that because we realized that this is one of the ways that we can actually impact are from our environment to make those adjustments. And it boosted my self-esteem so much because I was like, hey, I can actually take care of myself out here, even as the weather's changing, even as all this is going on. So that's just one story that illustrates a little bit about, I have a lot of other stories, but most of my stories that I have now in the past, I don't know, 15 years or 20 years has been fairly non-eventful from a survival point of view, because I have the right gear and 
I know myself and I look at the weather and I just get everything dressed the right way. And the biggest thing is that I just sometimes overdress and then I get a little bit too sweaty. And that's one of the things that's hard is that all your body can get chilled if you're really active and then sweat and then you stop and all that sweat and everything uh, starts to get cold. That's one of the big signs. Please, if you're a forest educator and you're not sure what's going on about some of this stuff, reach out to other people who are already doing this work. There are forest educators in Sweden and Finland who are outside with kids all the time. They know what to do. They know how to handle themselves. There's forest educators in all over North America. There's wilderness survival instructors. Even the guest that I had recently with Kylie Maroney with the lure of the North, she she does programs and trips where she takes people out and in a guided trip where you're actually learning how to handle the cold and learning how to put your snowshoes on and learning how to dry your clothes out and build a camp and eat the right foods and all that. There are definitely places where you can go to get experiences that can expand your understanding and allow you to get those leadership skills that are able, you're able to really get the advantage of that because doing it on your own can be tricky. And I will say it does help if you, especially if you're new and you're not sure, it does help to have other people doing it with you. I was lucky when I was a kid because it was like everybody was out there skiing and snowshoeing and sledding. And so we weren't really alone. It was, I always had this like pack of kids around doing things with together. And that's the, that's one of the best ways to do it. But in today's world, if you're an adult, you might not have other people that you can do these things with. So sometimes it's helpful to take classes. And the last thing I'm going to just say before I sign off on this is to say that when you have this kind of cold training, a cold experience, if you're leading a group, you really have to take care of yourself and know yourself really so that you can take care of other people. So you need to know what those signs are of home hypothermia. You need to know when people are really resisting the cold and you need to be able to help them make good decisions and to be able to help support them and to allow yourself to be calm and feel good and be excited. Because when you have that, it's indisputable. Like people will then just go, oh, okay, hey, Ricardo's not stressed, therefore I, I can relax. And, and it helps them to know what they can and can't do. Try, try to do these in like small steps. I don't recommend going to the Bob Marshall Wilderness in Montana in January and going, getting dropped off on a helicopter on a frozen lake. I don't rec recommend that as your first step. So do what you can and have fun with it and just know that winter is incredible and i would also i guess this is my like my fifth thing that i'm adding to say one more thing but probably one of the things that has helped me the most about winter and f is to understand its magical power is that i spend a lot of time thinking about animals when i'm out i think about chickadees and how they're just like this little tiny they got these little stick legs they're just a little puff of fur. It's They're literally like a cotton ball popping around on a couple of twigs. And yet they are out there in the most brutal cold. They don't go ever inside, really. I guess they some of them have like little holes in a tree, like an old squirrel uh, hole or something. But for the most part, they're just hopping around. They sleep on a branch. Coldest days, they're fine. I think of owls. I think of bobcats. I think of foxes. I think of a wolverine or a deer or any of those animals, mink and weasels and these animals that are, are perfectly adapted to the cold and they never go inside. So like a deer, no matter how cold it is, is never going to come and go, hey, I guess I'll hang out and sleep inside uh, Rick's barn. Like they're just not going to do that because they're adapted to being out there and they experience everything of winter. I can't tell you how many times I'm like sitting in my house by a warm wood stove and I can hear the wind howling in the house, feeling the the push of the 40 mile an hour wind. And just knowing that the bobcats out there sitting on a rock, curled up, sleeping. 
And the fox is sitting over on another, under a pine tree with the tail wrapped around his nose, just chilling out. And the deer are just sitting there looking around and they're oblivious, right? They're just wandering, gathering browse. Like everything, take they take all of nature all the time. And it's to me, it just is really inspiring. Follow those animals as a guide and just get out, see those animal tracks in the snow, see how beautiful it is and all the different shapes and how the landscape has changed and is entirely different from the summertime or spring or fall. And, and in the words of Tom Brown, go out there and, and make the cold wind your brother. That's my advice. I hope you have a great winter and I will see you next week. Thanks for listening to today's episode and for all the things that you do to help build a world that is connected to nature. You can get access to the bonus episodes, my forest educator nature journals and curriculum, as well as other useful content by subscribing to my Patreon page where you can support us at any level. You can find the link in the show notes for that and my website and social media as well. And I will see you outside.